there's no need for politics to really come into how we're operating. But I think it is, you know, anytime you have a president in office that plays your sport, it helps. And anytime you have a leader of your country that is engaged in, in your field, that provides great opportunity. President Obama does come out and hit around occasionally, although he's a basketball player. But um, President-elect has been known to play tennis and is a huge fan of the sport. And we'll see where that goes. everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast, Beyond the Baseline. Thanks for joining us. We were going to have a player guest, but we have pushed him back, in part because he had the flu and we thought uh, he should return in full health. Instead, we have USTA's Katrina Adams. She is the chairman of the board, CEO, and president. And we say that in present tense. Her two-year term has ended, but for the first time in the 135 years of the USTA doing this, they have given her a second term, which... I think it's good news for a variety of reasons we'll get into. One of them is a two-year term is awfully short interval of time to uh, to have any real impact. So I think it's great that Kat Adams gets a second two years. This was a bit of a surprise, and she talks about the circumstances of this. But as she is at her midterm point and not her uh, her end point, Kat Adams joins us to talk about her career, what she is looking to expect and achieve in her second term, and the state of American tennis in general. We thank her for joining us. Kat Adams, I appreciate uh, appreciate the time. Congratulations. I just see from the release, this is the first time in 135 years that a chairman of the board has been given a second term. So congrats on that. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really an exciting time for the organization as well as for myself, and uh, I think it's a testament to what I've done in these two years to have a, the vote of confidence from our nominating committee. So, so what happened? I was, uh, I remember during the U S open, there was a story and I went back and looked it up from cranes, New York departing USTA chief sees clear skies ahead for American tennis in the U S open. You, you are not departing though. What, uh, what seems that, to have happened? That is, in the last that is few correct. Weeks? I think, yeah, I think the, uh, you know, when, when, because of history, when it's uh, a one-term president, everyone always starts to write about your departure and, and what you've done. So, uh, you know, an opportunity presented itself uh, shortly there after the Open, um, where the nominating committee reached out to me to continue um, as a president for the upcoming term. Did, did you lobby for this? I mean, is this the kind of thing where you said, listen, uh, we're off to a good start, but I've still got uh, a lot of work to get done? Or was this something? No, that- no, I, I had nothing to do with it. Actually, our um, our current um, first vice president, who would have been the successor, um, ended up not being able to, to move forward next year in this capacity uh, for personal reasons. And so it opened up an opportunity for me. But, uh, you know, they could have gone in any direction. Um could have gone with you know someone else and and they didn't and so um you know i'm truly humbled by the reappointment do you see clear skies ahead as this uh as this headline has us believe um where where's tennis right now in the united states in your estimation well as far as clear skies ahead i mean you know there's, there's always going to be a uh some uh some small clouds around <laughs> um but you know, we, we are moving in the right direction. I think we, we've shown with our progression of our professional players, both on the women's and men's side, that we have a great crop of young players coming up that are challenging the big boys at the top. 
um, as well as the big girls. You know, Madison Keys moving into the top ten last year was uh, huge for her and the opportunity. I mean, she's still young. And a slew of young players behind her with Coco Vandeweghe, Sloane Stevens, and, and Christina McHale, et cetera. And then when you look at the emergence of Taylor Fritz, what he's done, and Jarrett Donaldson, obviously Jack Sock and John Isner going back and forth of who, uh, who was going to end the American number one along with Steve Johnson. So, you know, we haven't had many players to talk about um, in the same conversation in quite a few years. And so to be able to, to rattle off those names with conviction is very positive for us. But it's also what about what Team USA is doing from the ground level up. And it's more about getting more players in the pipeline so that we will have a plethora of players at the top as they are emerging. And that's where we're, we're very confident about uh, the progression of what we're doing from the grassroots levels through the NJTLs all the way up through player development. What is the relationship? And I, I don't know if there if there's data here or if there are any sort of analytic analysis. I mean, what is the relationship between having American stars and the health of tennis in the United States? Well, you know, I think it's it's important for when you have the young players. Let, let's just start with the kids. You know, when the kids are seeing, uh, you know, the Serena Williamses, Vina Williamses, Andy Roddicks, um, you know, ho- hoisting that U.S. Open trophy up it says a lot for them to want to be like them um and even if it's not about american tennis players and it's tennis in general it's it's making sure that these kids have an opportunity to see professional tennis and players that they like to emulate whether they're american or not to have an interest in the sport as far as the viewers are concerned um i think it's very important that we have our american stars as they can start to follow week in and week out as they're building their careers and moving up in the rankings and, and, and competing for a title at the U.S. Open, um, you know, the more eyeballs we have on the game, the, healthy, the healthier we are as a game, and therefore if we have more eyeballs, there's more participation because it sparks interest for people to want to just go out and get exercise. It's not even about competing all the time, but just participating in the sport. And I think we've done a great job of really – um, bringing that to the forefront with our participation um, here in the U.S. What are you seeing in terms of participation? I mean, I've, I've seen different figures, and, and so, some are more encouraging than others. I mean, when you are asked about participation, what what are the numbers that you and your capacity as, of, of chairman are, are throwing out there? Well, you know, I don't I don't have that number. I don't have that figure for you right now. But I will say that we have actually been somewhat flat in the last couple of years. Um, the good thing is that we're not declining. We did have a couple years of decline with our numbers based on um, the surveys that are out there. And, you know, you can't really rely on, on all the surveys that are out there. But uh, based on the data that we have, we have been flat. We've been up in some age categories, down in others, and therefore um, you end up being flat. So for us, it's making sure that we can build those numbers in all age groups. So it's not only just bringing new players into the game, it's making sure that we're engaging, um, I would say, the 18 to 40 group that's graduated from high school that may not be playing collegiate tennis, starting a new career or a new family that has left the game, and then they end up coming back at a later date. So we want to make sure that we can engage that 18 to 40 group, um, but also make sure that we continue to nurture 
um, and be inclusive of our seniors and super seniors so that they can find other means of exercise when they can't cover the full court. And as we use our 36 and 60 foot court um, um, blended lines that are inside of our 78 foot courts with a lower compression balls that we can entice them to stay in the sport and not go on to other uh, activities. I always thought that two years, that was the, the normal term, right, for the, for the chairman of the board, was problematic just in the sense that, uh, you know, by the time you learn everyone's name and where the water cooler is, you're, you're almost a lame duck. What is having this second term going to enable you to do? Uh, I like that. Uh, you're, well, I don't, you're funny I don't know. You about tell the me. We'll back up. Do you do you do you agree with that premise? I mean, I, I always thought two years was always a very compressed amount of time to expect someone to make real impact and, and implement real change. But maybe you disagree. I mean, feel free to attack. No, that no, no. I think you're you're absolutely right with that. I think you know people have talked about it, but I think once you're actually in my shoes and in this position, we do realize that two years is not enough. It takes you a year, particularly when you come in with a new initiative. It takes a good year for you to really get it implemented, to really start to um, see any kind of results. It's 12, 16 months into your term, and then you're on your way out almost. Right. So this will allow me to really uh, see some progression within my initiatives, hopefully, um, to prove that if you, if you have a little longer time um, to really push your initiatives forward, and, you know, it's a learning – you have a learning period, too. The first six, eight months um, is also a learning period. So now having the extra two years, I think this, this third year is a pivotal year for me and the organization as we continue to push our initiatives forward uh, to really see some, some real growth there. And, you know, with the, with the opening of our USTA national campus down in Orlando, um, that's also going to help, help us. Um, with visibility, with opportunity, with uh, competitive players getting more excited, and um, it, it's a real it's a real opportunity for all of us. And what's give us a sense of what your your days are like, what your lives are like. I mean, you're based in New York, but we have a facility in Florida, and obviously, you know, the, the USDA is a national organization. Players are competing globally. Give us a sense of how your year breaks down, where you're spending the balance of your time. Uh, well, I spend a lot of my time on the road. I mean, I, I do have several responsibilities uh, as the president of the USTA, of which uh, a big portion of it is, is international. Um, I sit on the Grand Slam board with the other chairman from the other uh, tournaments, and we meet um, five times a year. We meet at each one's Grand Slam, as well as uh, one of the year-ending championships, whether it's the ATP World Tour Finals or the WTA Finals. And so that's five meetings. I'm also the vice president of the International Tennis Federation and sit on that board. And so that's also four other meetings, um, the chairperson of the ITF Fed Cup Committee. So that's other meetings. And some of these meetings are during uh, some of the Grand Slams where I'm already attending, so it's not extra travel. But, you know, if you add it up, that's probably eight or ten um, other trips that I am away out of the country. And so it's a huge responsibility because not only am I representing the USTA, I represent, I'm the chairman of the U.S. Open, um, one of the four Grand Slams. And so that's a, that's a greater responsibility in some regards because that's 
that's where we make our revenue. That's how we fund all the programs that we do um, from the grassroots up. And so it's very important to make sure that I'm on top of the business at hand there and fully engaged. And then when I'm here domestically, I'm, I'm busy attending, you know, many of our CTA fundraisers, our, our NJTL fundraisers. I'm meeting um, with some of our section leadership um, around the country at perhaps one of their board meetings or semi-annual or annual meetings. So it's a, it's a robust schedule that I have. Um, it's been a busy two years. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the next two years. But having done it, I also understand that I can start to delegate a little bit more as well with uh, some of my other officers and board members on the board. Where are you? It, it seems as though whether it's it's – you know, some of the changes at the top of the sport on the player side and people wondering what life is going to be like after Federer and Serena or whether it's just this shift to mobile. It, it does seem like even since the U.S. Open, talk about format change has accelerated, whether it's four game sets or whether it's sort of making the tennis product more easily digestible to, to the fan or embracing technology. It, it seems as though this this speculation about format change and I don't again, feel free to uh disagree on this, but it, it seems as though this conversation comes up more and more. Where do you stand on that? I'm not sure, you know, where where you're hearing that. I mean, obviously, you well, we know, talk, with, we talked, with the uh, way our media... Sorry, go ahead. No, but it just... Go ahead. Um, you know, we had, we had Eric Buderak on a few weeks ago, and he came out and said, you know, I, I love tennis as much as the next guy, but I don't know if I need four hours of, you know, Djokovic against Vavrenka. And it, it does seem right. more and more players are, are seeming to come around to suggestions that maybe we need to tinker a little bit with the presentation. Well, I think when it comes to our Grand Slams, I mean, we have no intent of changing our presentation. Um, as you know, the U.S. Open is the only Grand Slam that plays a final set tiebreak. So we've eliminated right. the opportunity of, you know, of having two-hour final sets on the men's side and our final sets on the women's side. Um, so, you know, we're always looking for, for new ways to innovate, um, more for, you know, the viewership and the fans to keep them engaged. And, yeah, I know there's been talks of the Fast Four, which I think has been dubbed Down Under or the short sets. But when you're talking about at the level of professional tennis and the money that's involved, I don't really see that type of format changing, changing anytime soon or happening anytime soon. Even at uh, even at non-slam, I mean, you know, Mur Andy Murray just played an event in Vienna where they were basically only playing tiebreakers. It, it sounds like you think we're still a ways away from that being implemented. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't see that happening anytime soon. It has been, well, you know, it has been discussed in, in a lot of different arenas, but from a Grand Slam perspective, that's of which I represent. That's not something that we're talking about. How are you feeling about the facility in Orlando? Oh, I'm loving it. I mean, uh, it's it's been a huge opportunity. I think um, for us, we're going to have 100 lighted tennis courts. Um, it's called the USCA National Campus, or dubbed the home of American tennis. It's an opportunity for players from all over the country to come and engage, not only to compete in various events, but really to be around world-class tennis players or, or players from all levels. So, we have a family zone um, with our 36, 60-foot courts 
where, you know, any, any parent or grandparent can come out and engage with the youth. And then obviously as we um, have different tennis camps uh, throughout the year, um, inviting several players from across the country, from all of our sections to come, we're looking at it more as a, uh, a melting pot, if you will, for, for education. We'll be able to host a lot of different workshops, coaches' workshops, um, you know, visual workshops, et cetera, where you can learn and take it back to your respective areas um, as we will have the best of the best available for, for everyone in the U.S. So it's a huge opportunity. Um, you know, our USCA community tennis department is down there as well as our player development. So any, any part that has to do with serving our players on the court um, is in Orlando and the executive offices and the business part, if you will, um, remains here in New York. I think the casual fan looks at the USTA and the, the, the ledger, the scoreboard is always going to be the effect of Americans on the pro game. And, you know, right right now there are no Americans in the top ten. That said, there are a lot of bright prospects coming that, that I think those of us who follow the sport are excited about. You know, there's, you mentioned Madison Keys, but I think she's the only female not named Williams in, in the WTA's top 30. But if you know the USTA, you know that the pro side is only a sliver. I mean, when you assess yourself, when you look back on your terms, plural, and, and say whether this how successful this was, what are the metrics you're going to look at? Well, I think we have to look at, you know, you can't, you don't just go straight to the top 10 or right, top right. five. So, you know, our ultimate goal is making sure we're getting players, or one of our goals is making sure that we're getting as many players in the top 100 as possible, which allows them to compete in their tour events at will um, across the world. And if you're on the main, you're in these main events, you have the opportunity to progress throughout through the rankings um, as quickly as your talent allows you to. And as I mentioned earlier, with a lot of our young players under 25, you know, the game has gotten older. It's not like it was 15 years ago where you had these teenage phenoms coming out at 14, 15, 16 and dominating. Um, the game has gotten older. And so a lot of our players are maturing later. I mean, I think a, a lot of the uh, equipment and the innovation and the equipment in the game has kind of slowed down the quick progression of players where everyone is a little more even keeled. Um, moving up and competing. But, you know, as I look at our national campus, you know, we're looking at it to serve as, as you know, the, the center, an epicenter for tennis innovation. So these players will have the best fitness facility. They'll have the best video analysis. They'll have all of this that will help provide the tools that they need to go out and be confident every time they step on the court. Um you know, and we've got a, a, an amazing sports science department. We've partners with uh, Andrews Institute. So when it comes to injuries and things of that nature, we have everything now at our fingertips for our players to have the opportunity to have any and everything they need, and it's up to them to go out and compete after that. So as long as we're providing it and making it available, then we're doing our job. Someone comes up to you, they say, you know, Ms. Adams, I'm so happy to meet you. You're the chairman of the USTA, and I have an 8-year-old son, or I have an 8-year-old daughter. They're terrifically athletic. I mean, I've had gym teachers say they have unbelievable hand-eye coordination. They love tennis, but they also love basketball and soccer. What sport should they play? How do you, how do you sell that parent on tennis for their, for their young and precociously athletic child? Well, it's not 
if they come up to me, that happens to me almost daily. Right. So when that happens, it's, when uh, it's no, it does happen, and it's great. And I love having those conversations because, you know, myself, I'm, I was, um, I'm an athlete. I was very athletic coming up. Um, I played a lot of different sports at a young age, and, and tennis grabbed my eye, grabbed my interest. Um, I think it's important that we provide the opportunities for these kids or parents, if you will, and understanding that tennis is a, is a sport of a lifetime. You know, not many kids are going to – there's no competitive opportunities at 30 or beyond in, in most of the other sports. What are you going to do at 50 or 60? Everybody plays tennis right. and or golf. So we want to push those type of stats on the parent. We want to let them know that it's a sport of a lifetime because of, of the healthy benefits that it offers. It's a non-contact sport, so there's limited risk of concussion in our sport, which is huge across the panel in other sports. There are huge concerns for parents. Um, and so, you know, it's an opportunity to earn a college scholarship. There's probably more opportunities on D1, D2 for these players to go and, and further their education um, through the sport of tennis. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a fun sport. So I think it's more about making sure their child is having fun. I don't like to force, I don't like to see parents force any sport on any child, but as long as they've been introduced and have been engaged, I think they'll find out just how fun the sport can be. You sold me. I like that. Um, here, here's one for you that I, uh, feel, feel free to, uh, to pass on this one, but I, I'm curious: have, have you considered the ways in which um, presidential politics could impact tennis? Um, you know, that's for me. It's more about focusing on what we're doing with our organization and, and what we're doing with our constituents. Um, there's no need for politics to really come into how we're operating, but I think it is. You know, anytime you have a president in office that plays your sport, um, it helps because they, they support it, they play it, they have other friends that are playing it, and, and anytime you have a leader of your, your uh, country that is engaged in, in your field, um, that provides a great opportunity. I mean, currently right now you have the first lady that's a tennis player, the kids are tennis players, um, President Obama does come out and, and, and hit around occasionally, although he's a basketball player. But um, President-elect um, has been known to play tennis and is a huge fan of the sport. And um, we'll see where that goes. What about the um, the presence of professional events in the U.S.? I mean, I've always thought that the real issue isn't necessarily that the best players may not be coming from the U.S. with the concentration they used to a generation ago. But the real loss for tennis is how many events have gone overseas, and now there, there are rumors of, of more that might be considering relocating. Where does that fall on your agenda? Well, of course we want to have as many professional tournaments in, in America as possible. We have over 100 um, pro-circuit events here in, in the U.S., um, from the entry level all the way up through 100,000-plus. And so, you know, our, our goal is to make sure that we continue to provide a pipeline of opportunity for our young players to earn a ranking and then build on their ranking and sustain it so that they can reach the ATP or WTA level. 
Um, when you talk about the tour events, of course, yes, we've lost many, many events over the years. But if you look at, look at it, it's not so much to the fault of, of the United States, but it's to the growth and, the, and opportunities opening for the rest of the world. It is a global sport. You have to recognize that. But we have to make sure that we nurture the events that we have. If we have an opportunity to bring an event back to the U.S., um, that makes sense for for us, the U.S. Um, TA, or any promoter here in the U.S., as well as fitting within the ATP and WTA tours, then we'll do that. But we don't control the tour schedules, and, and that's, where, um, that's where people don't understand. It's not about us letting tournaments go. It's just that we don't control the schedule or the reasons that each respective tour has been broken up to particularly in the last six, seven, eight years. You know, I, I, I wrote uh, this week a little bit about the idea of regional tours that, that comes up from, from time to time. Is that something that you have thoughts about? As a regional tour? Yeah, the, I mean, the, the idea, and I'm, you know, I'm not the person that came up with this, but the idea was that you, have, you divide the world into to three regions, presumably, North and South America, Europe and, and Africa, Asia and Australia, everybody comes together for the big events and the slams and the mix events, but the regular conventional 250-type events, 500 events, are going on within a region, and that will cut down on travel costs, and you don't have to deal as much. It's a better proposition for the media without dealing with time zones, and you'll be able to mint stars in your region. So someone like Ali Risk or you know someone who's ranked number 40 in the U.S. who might get a little lost in the shuffle would suddenly be number six in the region and would have a bigger profile. And then everybody comes together for the slam. So you would not necessarily get to see Angie Kerber eight, 10 times a year in the U S but everybody would come together for the big events and you'd essentially uh, create three separate tours. Well, I think if you look at the way both the ATP and the WTA tours are, um, are structured, their tours are regional because they're in certain regions leading up to each respective Grand Slam. So I'm not certain that there's a, a need or necessity to create uh, a separate tour to provide that opportunity or that visual um, for the players. Yes, it probably is geared more towards the, the higher le- level events. Um, but when you get down to the, I guess for the men, the 250s and the women would be, uh, forgive me if I call it wrong, it may be the international right. tours for, for the WTA, um, they are pretty much structured that way. And then I think it's incumbent upon the players to make sure that they schedule, they make the proper schedule for them that um, does not have them going back and forth across, you know, the continents and multiple time zones. Obviously, when the regions shift, there is that opportunity, but, you know, when you look at the Europeans, you know, they're they're more centrally based to be closer to home a lot of times. And for us in the U.S., coming back from Europe or Asia or whatever, it's it's more travel. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I don't I don't foresee um, any third party uh, tour emerging European. because you already have the ITF Pro Circuit tours, and then of course the respective. Um, men's and women's tours, as previously mentioned. So what's your – you talk to people about tennis. Oh, tennis needs to shake things up. And, you know, even uh, Martina Navratilova, even sort of players and former players within the sport 
are looking for, I think, some some kind of convulsive change. What's your craziest idea? I mean, what if you were really going to shake things up? What's sort of one of the more uh, what's one of the more aggressive ideas that that you're thinking about? Well, you know, it's not so much of, of shaking it up. I think again, it's it's more about making sure that it, the shake up is for fan engagement because. You know, you want to make sure you have your TV viewers and your ratings are up any time that you're putting on an event um, and and allowing these players to, to, to go out and represent themselves. So, you know, I, I look at people are always trying to figure out ways of shortening, um, you know, how do we shorten matches? You know, it's not so much about shrinking or changing the scoring format, but, you know, maybe it's about engaging more with a, a service clock. Um, if you will, like a shot clock. Right, right. Make sure that the time in between each point, um, you know, it starts when it's, as the rules state, within 25 seconds or so. And I, I think those are some of the ways that you can become a little more innovative. You know, we brought in Hawkeye uh, years ago with the challenges, which has been great. Um, fans love it. The players love it. Um, it's it's not so much of, of shaking up the sport with with changing um, scoring format, so to speak. It's just my opinion. You sound so measured. I thought you were going to tell me everyone's got to play with uh, wooden rackets and we're going to change the dimensions of the court and we're only going to play. Yeah, no, none of that. I, you know, at the, at the end of the day, as, as, as much as I like innovation, John, I am I am also a traditionalist when it comes to our sport. Uh, I respect the sport from where it's come from. We have grown a lot. We've moved forward a lot. We've made a lot of advancements in our sport. Um, great opportunities for players to, to earn an, an amazing living. Um, and again, it's a sport of a lifetime for, for those non-competitive or non-tour players to, to really go out and compete and have fun and enjoy it. You know, when you talk about, it's funny, you want, you want to talk about changing the professional game but when you go down into the recreational uh, competitive level, they don't want you to touch it. They're like, why are you touching the sport? Why are you, why are we playing pro sets? Why are we only playing no ad? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Because people want to play. People want to spend time on the court. And so you have to make sure that you are um, appealing to your participants as much as you're trying to uh, appeal to um, the professional level tournaments as well. I like that. This is uh, this is sort of a, a, a sliver. This is a, a micro view of tennis more generally. I think that there are a lot of assets and there's value in the tradition, and at the same time, it's 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 2016. It's it's um it's sort of a riddle that the sport at every level is uh is is trying to solve. But this um this is great. I don't know anything. I mean, this is your uh you know you're you're at the halfway turn now. So you, uh, it's like the midterm elections. Is there, there anything else you want to add, or anything, anything you want people to know? I mean, I, I feel like uh, we we get two more. No, years I just of think you. it's what? exciting times. Yeah, you know what? It's exciting times. I think you, you, you know, when you look at someone like me, we're talking about where you learn to 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 have the managerial skills, administrative skills, et cetera. You know, we're a sport, and when you look at someone with my background and my experience coming from, you know, the public parks playing at USCA junior circuit, you know, playing high school tennis, collegiate tennis, professional tennis, being a national coach, being a commentator, and, and now an administrator. I think 
there's nobody that really understands all the different dynamics and the needs and the concerns from all of these areas um, than myself. And I think it's been a proven asset for our sport, for our participants here in the U.S., and I'm looking forward to building on it. You know, we've gotten a lot of our past players re-engaged in our sport, whether it's on the player development side or the admin side. And, and I think that's a testament to my representation and understanding that, yes, there is life after competitive tennis, and that's something that I want to continue to promote because we need to get even more players involved in giving back. I'm giving back to a sport that has given me everything, and, and that's, the, that's the most important thing for me. Um, is trying to make a difference in someone else's life. Someone pulled me along, and this is my opportunity to to pull thousands along. I like that. That's a good place to uh, that's a good place to wrap up. I uh, I think tennis is fortunate to have you for another two years, but more importantly, I think uh, the USTA Board of Directors feels like tennis is lucky to have you for another two years. So, uh, well, I really appreciate you got, that. You're, you you got you got a whole other term. Go uh, go keep working your magic. Thank you so much. Thanks. We'll talk soon. I appreciate this. Okay. Congrats again. All right. Thanks, Kat. All right. Thanks to Kat Adams, our guest this week on the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Good to hear from her. And, again, she is at the turn now. She's at the halfway point and not the end of her tenure as USTA chairman of the board because she got a second term. So she'll now serve for four years. Uh, I think you get a sense of her political savvy and a sense of why she's popular, especially with the USTA board of directors. Uh, some challenges, but also a lot of good signs as far as the state of U.S. tennis. And again, I would encourage us to think of that as going beyond just how many players populate the top of the rankings on the ATP and WTA tours. That is this week's podcast. Feel free to send your suggestions, criticism, and especially suggested guests. We'll try to accommodate as many of those as we can. I'm John Wertheim. Our producer, as always, is Jamie Lasanti. We'll do it again in a week. Have a good week, everyone.